HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Airway, and we're live from Brooklyn today. And uh, it happens to be the birthday of a food writer named Patience Gray. She was a very lesser known but very influential food writer and lived to, from sorry, to 1917 to 2005. Um, you know, she's been called the greatest food writer that you've never heard of, but I'm really excited to talk more about her today with the author of, an, of a biography about her. So I'm joined today by Adam Fetterman on the line from Vermont. Is that right? Yeah, Vermont. Thanks hey, for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Adam. And uh, congratulations on this book. Um, I'm, I'm curious, though. You've been an a re- investigative reporter um, you've had, uh, you earned a Russian Fulbright fellow. You've been a middle, Middlebury fellow. You have written for the nation, the guardian, Columbia journalism review, gastronomica, and many other, um, journals. But, uh, is this your first full length book? This is my first book. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, might seem somewhat unrelated to my other work, but I've always had an interest in food and have actually worked as a cook, Mm. Bread, bread baker and pastry chef, uh, and was always, you know, interested in food writing and food writers. So when I when I came across uh, patients after she died in 2005, I read an obituary uh, in the Art of Eating magazine that described Honey from a Weed as one of the best book, one of the best books that will ever be written about food, uh, and, and that certainly piqued my interest. And uh, you know, that was kind of the beginning of. of mm-hmm. what turned into a, a very long 10-year uh, project. 
Yeah. It sounds like, um, and, and you mentioned that the editor of The Art of Eating, you, you found that it was surprising to hear such glowing endorsements um, from a more critical, usually, editor. <laughs> yeah. And it, it seems like Patience was something of like a secret amongst this very, you know, uh, influential inner circle of uh, chefs and food writers. So you mentioned that she, Patience was beloved by the likes of Alice Waters, April Broomf- uh, Bloomfield, and, and more. But to most of us, she was pretty unknown. Right. I mean, she didn't have much of a presence beyond that sort of small circle of, of food writers, as you mentioned. And, and many of them actually went to visit Patience. They were so kind of... Uh, taken by her work, which was, was really singular, that, that mm-hmm. it actually inspired them to, to make the long trek to Puglia to visit her, including oh. you know, Ed Bear, the editor of, of The Art of Eating magazine, uh, Corby Cummer, Harold McGee, Alice Waters, Nancy Harmon Jenkins. A lot of people sought her Dr. out Madison. because, mm-hmm. I think, in part because there was this somewhat mysterious aura mm-hmm. about her. Yeah. Yeah, that is pretty fascinating. So her seminal work is called, um, sorry, Honey. <laughs> My notes are all over the place. Honey, honey, honey from, from a, a weed. weed. What is so singular about this work? Well, it, um, it really brings together sort of narrative uh, nonfiction writing about the, the many different places that Patience and her partner Norman lived throughout the Mediterranean and writing on food, including recipes, of course, uh, but to describe it as a cookbook is is really not to give a complete picture uh, of what it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she had a very difficult time finding someone to, to publish the book in, in large part because it is so uh, unusual, mm-hmm. unconventional, you know, for a, for a cookbook. But yeah, it's, it's sorry, go on. It sounds oh, like um, a, a very influential writers or sorry, editors wanted to publish it, but it was too risque. Yeah, there time. were some. I found a, an amazing letter, actually, from, from Judith Jones to uh, Patience's publisher, Alan Davidson. So Alan Davidson, the founder and uh, pu- publisher of Prospect Books, ultimately did publish Honey from a Weed. It came out in 1986, so a little over 30 years ago now. And uh, he was trying to find someone in the United States to, to take it on because he felt that it would have a real kind of impact. Mm-hmm. He, uh, so he, he wrote to Judith Jones and, you know, asked her if she'd be interested in, in, in doing this. And she wrote back to say that she had actually seen the manuscript at some point and, and oh. fell in love with it and, and kept, uh, you know, portions of it when she needed yeah. that kind of, uh, you know, sustenance. Uh, but she also went on to say that Knopf would, would never take on something like that at that time. You know, the publishing world had changed. And, and you're right, you know, they weren't willing to take that kind of a risk on a book that, you know, in the end, it actually sold very poorly in the United States. Uh, d- despite right. critical reception, mm. uh, it sold very poorly. So it's, it's one it's of the nice things phenomenon. about yeah. having kind of rede- rediscovered her today is that Honey from a Weed is, is, is again being, um, you know, introduced to a new generation of readers. Mm-hmm. Now, isn't that sort of maddening, though? So many people passed up on this, what, you know, so many have uh, called now so influential uh, what was what was so crazy and and uh, not mainstream friendly about it? I know she talked about wild foraging. She lived in a very remote pl- um, area of Puglia, um, right. and she was talking. She basically grew most of her food. Did people just didn't think it was relatable? I think it was partly the structure 
the structure mm-hmm. of the book. It's just not a standard kind of recipe book. Uh, and also, yeah, I think part of it was the fact that, that she was writing about a place that was so far afield. However, I think today that that might not be such an issue. That sounds great. <laughs> right, Inspirational. It sounds like the kind of thing yeah. people would, uh, <laughs> would jump at. Right. But, you know, we have to remember 1986 uh, was a little bit before the, the sort of interest in, in really exotic and, and remote, um, I guess, places and, and the kinds of food and traditions that sustain them. So who knows? Maybe the yeah. book would have had an entirely different uh, reception um, today. Right. And, and I think it's, it's really great that you've picked up and um, sort of further embellished her story today. Um, greatly so. This is a very, very uh, intoxicating biography. I have to say, it's, um, I haven't read too much of Patience Gray's work, but I need to now because <laughs> this work is so wonderful. But, um, you know, you write um, that um, at the end of the introduction, you write, indeed, her hope that a more traditional approach to food and cooking would take root, even among city dwellers, has exceeded the most optimistic expectations. Honey from a Weed lives on, a source of inspiration to many, but Patience herself remains an almost forgotten culinary star. So, yes, this approach, this back-to-the-land, basically, traditional approach to food, and um, it is definitely, I mean... You, you see it in all the finest restaurants, in all the great cookbooks, you know, are extolling um, the seasons. For instance, they're organized by seasons these days. Um, and that was very much what Patience was writing about. Absolutely. And, and I think this idea of, of nose-to-tail eating, you know, really making uh, uh, the most of, of what you have and, and not wasting anything, I think that idea is something that in the last 10 years has, mm-hmm. has you know, reshape the way we we think about food uh, and in fact the way we eat and and you know largely for the better mm-hmm. i think that it's interesting that she was very much removed from let's say the the northern california 60s 70s back to the land movement in america um where a lot of us associate the slow food, you know the growth of this food movement coming from um she was in a completely disparate, like distant land. Um, and yet those values that she treasured, she was a little ahead of her time, but she was not even, you know, part of this movement. Right. She, she really wasn't. And she, she decried being attached to any kind of group or, or movement. Uh, it was very much a, uh, an individualist. Uh, but, you know, some of the same forces that were encouraging people to uh, or pushing people to embrace some of the ideas that were part of the back to the land movement here in the United States were mm-hmm. also, you know, bubbling up in Europe and, and Patience and her partner Norman, they met in 1958 uh, and left London in 1962. So it was really at that very charged uh, political moment uh, that they that they chose to leave mm-hmm. the, the big city and, and begin their travels. So, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting to, to look at those trends mm-hmm. across, uh, across continents. Why do you think, um, Adam, more people should be, why do you think we should revisit Patience Gray today? What can we gain from that? I think one of the, the most important things really is this central idea to, to her cookbook and to what she felt was the foundation of Mediterranean uh, cooking, which was built around uh, fasting and feasting. And, and it 
you know, it was partly seasonal uh, in, uh, in the case of uh, Naxos, the Greek island of Naxos, where they lived for a year. It was also uh, part of the, the uh, religious, you know, rituals around Lent. Uh, but, you know, scarcity was something that patients felt made eating and food that much more uh, pleasurable and meaningful when, when it was present. So mm-hmm. I think that that's an idea that, that we probably have, have lost touch with almost entirely, uh, even though we may think of ourselves as somewhat more enlightened when it comes to eating seasonally and foraging and all the rest. We, we always have an abundance of whatever it is we seem to want. Uh, and I think that that was something that patients looked, uh, you know, somewhat skeptically at. Mm-hmm. And it's also great to sort of be able to flesh out um, an individual who was a writer, but was very much a shadowy figure even during her lifetime. It seems like there was a hunger to learn more about her, and there was just not very much left. There's not very much information besides her, her you know, seminal book. That's, that's right. And that was one of the, the other interesting things after reading Honey from a Weed. It is a very autobiographical book, and you, you get this remarkable sense of, of who Patience was. But at the same time, it reveals almost nothing about her past or who she was. Uh, and that um, tension really is what grabbed me because I wanted to, to find out, well, who, who was this woman? How did she end up writing this remarkable book? How did uh, she end up in this island or, you know, this area that it was so far removed from where she grew up? Yeah, and of course, you know, she had a long career before they left for mm-hmm. uh, the Mediterranean. She was, you know, she was 40, 42 or something like that when they actually left London. Uh, and she had had a remarkable career uh, both as a, a cookbook author and artist, mm-hmm. uh, journalist. You know, she was the first editor of the, uh, the, wo- the Woman's Page, right, Plat yeah. du Jour in 1957. And then she went on to edit the Women's pa- uh, Women's Page at the Observer. Uh, from 1958 to 62, she was one of the translators of Larousse Gastronomique, the French Encyclopedia of Cooking. So she had her hand in, in a number of of interesting. Yeah, uh, and these are yeah. like classic books of you know classic yeah. um, housewife you know cookbooks of the post-war era that she played yep. a hand in here. La Toujour was was um, published in 1957, so Elizabeth David had already kind of paved the way to mm-hmm. some extent with her. Mediterranean, summer cooking. Yeah. And it sounds like patience, rather than sort of building on that that fame, she eschewed it. She turned away from it. She refused to do an updated revision of Plat du Jour, for instance. Right. I, I mean, that was one of the really intriguing things as well that I, I found yeah. in the Strange. archives, mm-hmm. the archives, is that there was this opportunity to to, to come out with a new edition of Plat du Jour, and, and it likely would have allowed patients to continue publishing cookbooks, you know, throughout the 60s and 70s. But patients' ideas about food and cooking were, were changing rapidly at that point, and she had a falling out with her co-author, who she had written Plat du Jour with. Uh, so, I mean, the, the amazing thing is, you know, 30 years later, she reemerges with Honey from a Weed. Mm. Um, and, you know, at that point, I think very few people had really uh, remembered Plat du Jour, but... Alan Davidson, who was always, you know, very her publisher, um, mm-hmm. yeah, her publisher and, and quite mm. um, had his had his ear to the ground. He he did a, a another edition of Blat du Jour, and and the book that book has also lived on. Um, and, and is very it's incredible. Beloved. So two yeah. very different sides of Patience Gray are still out there, very much in the world. 
Um, we, I want to get to know more about why she kept shape-shifting and reinventing herself. But uh, we're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude and be right back. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. We're back chatting more with Adam Fetterman. He was helping us uncover the mysteries of Patience Gray, the life uh, a visionary food writer. Um, his biography is called Fasting and Feasting, the life of visionary food writer Patience Gray. Um, we, You mentioned Elizabeth David, and I think we may have mentioned MFK Fisher. Where do you think Patience falls in this line? Is she a very different type of writer when it comes to food writing? I think her writings share some similarities, certainly with with David and, and MFK Fisher. I think stylistically more with MFK Fisher, mm-hmm. uh, and Plat du Jour was much more uh, in, in Elizabeth sort David. of in the mm-hmm. tradition of, of what Elizabeth David was doing. But they went in in completely different directions. You know, Elizabeth David <laughs> devoted herself to much more scholarly work, and Patience was off, you know, kind of foraging and collecting. <laughs> Being plans. sort of a throw-like figure, yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting. Patience, you know, she, she talked about that in, in some of her letters, the fact that Elizabeth David was writing from, not from life or experience, but, uh, but mm. from books, and, and Patience kind of uh, came to see that as, as somewhat flawed. Mm. Uh, but, you know, they were contemporaries. They, they were of the same generation. They had all lived through the Second World War, and, and I, I think they really reshaped the genre of food writing and uh, made it, it, it turned it into something that was taken seriously as a as a form of literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's she's certainly part of that tradition, yeah. right? So you you came across Patience Gray in 2005 when she was already no longer with us. Um, how hard was it to track down her past? It it took. It took many turns. No, I, I had it took the, the, the last ten fortune. years. <laughs> I had the great fortune of of working with her children, who were uh, remarkably open and willing to to give me access to her, to her letters and, and and unpublished papers. So her son Nicholas uh, has lived in Puglia in the farmhouse that Patience and Norman lived in up until uh, Patience died in 2005. Norman died in 2000, and, and Nick has been there ever since. Uh, so he, I got in touch with with Nick and his sister Miranda, and Nick said, "Come on, come down. You're welcome to to look at the." He called it a. a he said it was in a, a state of horrendous chaos, and that I would take one look at it and, you know, beat a hasty retreat to find a saintly monk to write about. 
<laughs> that's the, ar- the archive was much too tempting. Oh, that's great. So it sounds like Patience really was critical of the society that she grew up in and her family, too. Um, and she completely, you know, doesn't regard this period of time at all in the, the weed. Sorry, the <laughs> I can never say honey from a weed. Yeah. Um, her this whole period of time, she grew up in a very privileged household. Did she find that this this just too suppressive? I think there were many aspects of of her childhood that she she uh, um, found oppressive and, and railed against, and, and spent much of her life. Um, trying to break free of. Uh, at the same time, she did have a lot of, of remarkable opportunities uh, for a young woman, uh, and and opportunities that her two sisters were not. Were okay. Not you know, she went off to, to boarding school in London at the age of twelve or thirteen. Traveled in in Eastern Europe, Romania. Went, went to the London School of Economics. She was incredibly curious and and precocious, uh, but she always felt that her 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 parents and their Edwardian, you know, background and upbringing had had been stifling, and you know was something that patients wore, you know, uh, a, a, as a bit of an albatross around mm-hmm. her own her own life as something that she kind of had to to constantly beat back. Right. Uh, and yet, I you know, it was her family's wealth and fortune that allowed her to explore this independence and travel and and so forth so it's Indeed. interesting and i think her mother olive gets gets uh, short shrift in, in patience's her own memoir and you know patience's children were very fond of their grandmother um so there were there were a lot of um you know there's a lot of mythology in any autobiography and i think patience certainly mm. um, had her own ver- her own version of of you know what her family was and, and how she felt about it Interesting. And, and she, it seems that she herself regarded herself as um, her own life really beginning um, in her 50s or so when she and her partner moved to Puglia. Yes. So this whole other period was just not as important. She, in many ways, she kind of wrote it out of her own life, especially the, the period before the Second World War and, and her relationship with uh, the father of her children, a man named Thomas Gray, Whose, whose name she took but, but never married, uh, had three children with him, one of, one of them died. And this was, you know, right in the middle of, of the war. She, she leaves him in 1943 and, and goes to live in a, a cottage that belonged to her mother, Olive, in, in the countryside. And, and uh, that period during the war, I think, was, was both formative and uh, quite, quite challenging. Sounds like <clears throat> it's incredible to... Um be able to live so many lives <laughs> and she lived quite long too so it's yes. a, a remarkable despite, despite the fact that she was a heavy smoker which which a number of, of food writers who went to visit her were somewhat surprised to discover wow must be that something about that mediterranean <laughs> air or something <laughs> cleanses right. it um no but it's 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 a really fascinating uh journey that you take us on with her life and and all the changing sort of seasons of a life and attitudes towards food. So why did she write um, Honey from a Weed? Is this, was she trying to sort of cement like, you know, no, I'm, this is no longer me, that plot du jour, the other, you know, cookbook errors. Was she trying to leave a lasting legacy? 
That's an interesting question. I don't think it was so much a, a self-conscious decision to, to, to demonstrate that she had... Because she didn't seem like she craved, you know, fame and, and, you know, stardom. No, certainly not. And I think she was, she, you know, she, I don't think anyone would write a book like Honey from a Weed craving <laughs> any kind of fame or limelight because, you know, she toiled away at this thing and, and was relatively unwilling to compromise, even though she knew that right. it was extremely difficult to, to find. You, you know, she, she worked hard to find a publisher for almost 15 years. Uh, she wow. had agents in London. She she was somewhat, you know, she was relatively well connected because of her her career as a mm-hmm. journalist in Hampstead. Right. So, you know, she was she knew what she was doing, and and she was willing to um, wait, you know, to, to write a book like this, and knowing that it it may not end up seeing the light of day. She had the patience, so to speak. <laughs> she did perseverance, and for her, I think it was it was more about the work, and, mm-hmm. uh, the artistry involved in in. Know, whether it was jewelry making, sculpture, or um, you know, writing about food. Do you think that all this time, kind of just working on it, waiting, not caring if it didn't, you know, land, but hoping that one day it would? Do you think that during this time she was able to sort of work on it more and let it simmer and the ideas mature? Undoubtedly, and, and you see that in, in the various uh, versions of the book that that she that she wrote. She revised it significantly, at least at least twice. And then, of course, when Alan Davidson agreed to, to publish the book, they had a remarkable uh, correspondence. You know, the, the book was edited via letter. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. they sent letters back and forth at a furious <laughs> clip. Uh, <laughs> and those letters are, are just um, absolutely astonishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the book, it, it changed. It changed mm-hmm. over time. And then Patience's way of thinking changed. And also, of course, it evolved you know, with her. Yeah, and and their life in Puglia, she incorporated much of, of the the traditions and, and foods from from that part of Italy. Incredible. I, I love hearing about stuff like that. It's like, you know, nothing needs to be rushed. You know, just let it, like a good stew, good stock, just let it simmer, you know? <laughs> It'll acquire a deeper flavor. But I'm struck, though, because it was only published in the mid-'80s. Um, by this time... You know, there was Chez Panisse. There was already a quite established back-to-the-land movement, as I was saying, um, and growing worldwide. So this came out, this didn't inspire that, but yet it still struck a strong chord with that movement. Absolutely. No, it, it certainly wasn't the only, uh, the only book out there either that was talking about some of these ideas. Uh, but I think that the way patients wrote about what she described as a fastest appearing way of life and, and why it was so, uh, you know, meaningful to both to her and, and she felt, uh, you know, more broadly. I think that is what captured people and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, challenged. I think it challenged them, too. It's, it's not a necessarily an easy book. Uh, and yeah. I think for, for whatever reason, the food world was, was really um, swept away by it. Yeah, definitely. So do you think that folks should read that first and then take into the biography? Because <laughs> many <laughs> haven't. <laughs> read, them, read them together. That's perhaps okay. the best way. Uh, I, 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 one of the great things is actually to see Honey from a Weed, as I, as I mentioned earlier, being rediscovered. Uh-huh. I think that Prospect Books are still publishing it, and, and I know that they're um, struggling to keep up with, with orders. So. Oh, really? It's a good sign. That's fantastic. I wonder if there's going to be a movie. 
knows? Hey, yeah, I, I'm I'm curious if you heard any any murmurs about that since your book has come out. Oh, um, there are always there are always rumors, but nothing nothing more than that. So. Really? Okay. Well, keep us posted. <laughs> but seriously, since your book has come out, uh, have you seen a growth of interest? I'm sure you know you've been at the heart and center of this, you know, resurgence because you've written this book. But what has it been like? How, what are the reactions that you hear from all kinds of folks? I know that there's wonderful accolades and um, quotes on the back of your book from you know Harold McGee, Deborah Madison, Corby Cummer. Um, what about folks who hadn't heard of her before? Yeah, I think I probably heard a, a little bit less from them um, since the book came out. It hasn't been that hasn't been that long. But I think the fact that there, there's obviously great interest in, in honey from a weed, so I'm, I'm I have no no doubt that people who had never heard of patients are um, discovering her. And really, that's the, the the way it was for me. You know, I, I had no idea who she was. Uh, and uh, embarked on this project. And I think one of the great things about her work is that it does have this, seems to have this great staying power, mm-hmm. uh, d- despite the fact that it really does depict a world that is very different from the one that we live in today. I should mention that it's not just food writers and chefs who love this book. It's also novelists, um, like you mentioned the late Jim Harrison and others, who really yeah. found her, her writing to be incredible. Yes, Angela Carter, uh, a British novelist, uh, as you mentioned, Jim Harrison described patients as a wandering Bruce Chatwin of food. Um, she, she, yeah, I, and, and clearly that's just a testament to her, her prose and the, um, the, the kind of uh, um, element Style. of her work that, that's very difficult to pin down. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, it, it sounds like, I mean, I, I've touched on some of her work, but I, I just can't wait to pick up a copy now of, of Honey from a Weed. It is so, it is like this, um, just this heart esoteric book now that I'm sure a lot of people are looking up with much thanks to, to not an obituary, but now your book. So thanks so much for bringing attention to that anew, to a new oh, generation. Thank, thank you. I'm very happy that, uh, that, it, that it came to be. There, there were certainly moments when it, uh, that it was not going to happen. So. You struggled to find a publisher? I, I did. I, it took me quite some time to try mm-hmm. to find a publisher in, in, in England, and, and that uh, didn't end up leading anywhere. So it was really just a, a stroke of luck that, uh, that Chelsea Green I, really? wow. approached me. Yeah. I was like, I, I mean, I love Chelsea Green. We've had a lot of their books on this uh, radio station. Mm. So... Um, I thought it was really cool that it was coming from Chelsea Green. I had no idea that uh, it took so it was so hard, and even a British uh, publisher didn't happen. So, well, <laughs> congratulations well, thank <laughs> to you. that. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, Adam, and thanks everyone at Heritage. That's about all the time we have for today. But we'll see you next week on Eager Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Never, 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 never had no loving like this before.